Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, all. I can't believe it, but today is already the last episode of season one. Although, please don't unsubscribe. There's actually going to be an epilogue that will drop just after Thanksgiving. In addition, I hope you stay subscribed to the podcast because I do intend to make a season two. Of course, that's why I'm here to talk to you before we jump into the podcast. If you are enjoying this podcast, I really hope that you stay subscribed and have left or plan on leaving a review in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Doing so helps other people find the podcast. In addition, if you'd like a season two and want a hand in helping me create it, please consider becoming a patron. Through Patreon, you can give as little as $1 a month, or if you'd like to support the podcast at the $3 level, you'll actually get full interviews from some of the guests that you've heard on this podcast. So if you've been dying to know what they actually said in the longer versions, well, $3 patrons will get the answers. Go to patreon.com bodybrandpod. If you're not comfortable giving money on a regular basis, but you do want to make a donation, you're also welcome to donate directly to my PayPal, which is at paypal.me slash K-A-I-L-A-P-R-I-N-S. However you want to support the podcast, whether it's word of mouth or monetarily, you are helping create a season two, and you're also helping pay back some of the work that I've done on this podcast. I am grateful to every single one of you who has subscribed, liked, shared, talked about, Instagrammed, become a patron, etc. You are all absolutely incredible, and I am just so, so, so grateful that the podcast is at least helping you start or join this conversation. I also want to hear from you, so please feel free to shoot me an email at yourbodyyourbrand at gmail.com. All right, thanks for listening, and now let's get into our final episode. We still don't get paid what I believe we're worth. I had secretly been wanting to try health coaching. Women have been dropping out. Your body is the next frontier of liberation. You have to monetize. We buy into this idea that anyone can do this. Your body becomes proof. Whether or not we're trying to sell a service or a product, all women are brands. Now I'm a health coach. My name is Kyla Tova, and this is Your Body, Your Brand. Episode 12, Health is Wealth. If you've listened this far into the podcast, you might be wondering if I'm driving to the point that all health coaching and personal training and yoga teaching, etc., is essentially bad and that no one should ever do it. And I don't necessarily believe that's the case. The goal of this whole podcast is to help you understand the underlying factors that are leading more and more female-identifying people toward considering these careers over other means of making money, and then to let you decide for yourself, and to help you and others like yourself begin to find alternatives. To fully understand the factors that are contributing to this trend, we need to synthesize what we've talked about thus far on the podcast. We've discussed how, from a cultural standpoint, fat phobia, dieting, and an obsession with quote-unquote self-improvement through fitness are accepted and even expected of women. We've discussed the pervasiveness of self-branding and the ways in which it enables women to present themselves as consumable objects. We've discussed quote-unquote what men feel all the time and why women feel pressure to mirror men in their drive for financial and career equality. And we've discussed the definition of feminism in terms of how women are valued and the ways that neoliberalism has perverted our understanding of that value. 
So today, I want to tie it all together by discussing why some women believe that the route to wealth is through health and why they prefer to take a path toward coaching and entrepreneurship instead of toward traditional forms of care work. I want to start this conversation by stating that the conclusions we're about to draw in this episode do not apply to all women in general, but that they are relevant when we look at the population of women who are gravitating toward careers as coaches, personal trainers, yoga teachers, and multi-level marketing reps. So why would a woman feel drawn to leaving the workforce to sell health in the first place? As far as what I do on the interwebs, um, I'm a body image coach, I guess you could say that, but more more along the lines of just helping people reconnect with their values and just live their lives. I am touching people and helping them. What I do is I help people discover who they are. I love waking up in the morning and working out and helping other people to work out. Oh, I can create a system that helps way more people. Help you lose weight. I know I wanted to help people, but I didn't know how. Helps people. Help people. I can help those people. I want to help. As we've discussed, in a neoliberal capitalist society, there is an imperative to constantly be creating value. And how can you create value under capitalism? You have to have a job, a career, some way to make money. That's what makes you a valuable member of society. Value, an economic term, is quantifiable. But what happens when generating value does not fulfill your sense of values or creates social value? Anthropologist David Graeber asks this question in his book, Bullshit Jobs, A Theory. While Graeber defines a bullshit job as a form of paid employment that is so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious that even the employee cannot justify its existence even though, as a part of the conditions of employment, the employee feels obliged to pretend that this is not the case, I would actually argue that there's a spectrum of bullshit when it comes to working, and that even people who can justify the existence of their jobs on some level may still feel empty when going to work, specifically because their job doesn't align with their personal values or create social value. For Graeber, social value is about creating sociability or doing things that help or quote-unquote give one another joy and happiness. It's about being there for one another caring for one another. And yet, there isn't always profit in creating social value, and that, in my opinion, is exactly the problem. Graeber suggests in his book that while people who responded to him with anecdotes about their bullshit jobs may have different measures of what is socially valuable and what is not, they, quote, would have agreed on at least two things. First, that the most important things one gets out of a job are one, money to pay the bills, and two, the opportunity to make a positive contribution to the world. Second, that there is an inverse relation between the two. The more your work helps and benefits others, and the more social value you create, the less likely you are to be paid for it." End quote. This quote from Graeber shook me to my core when I first read it because it encapsulated to me the exact dilemma that these women, this particular population of women, found themselves in when facing down the prospect of continuing their current careers or building new ones. Over the past few weeks, we've heard many different women share their unique stories about wellness entrepreneurship, but the common thread that ran through all of them is the value that these women place on care and the way in which care is valued or valuated in our society. Now, before we go any further, I want to make clear from the outset of this conversation that I do not hold any gender essentialist views, nor do I endorse that worldview on this podcast. Instead, I want to look at this from a cultural standpoint. 
especially for women assigned female at birth and raised as women, but for women in general, there is an emphasis on nurture in our nurturing. From the time we start taking care of our baby dolls to the very first recitation of the Girl Scout law to help people at all times, we learn the value of helping others. As we grow, we are exposed to female babysitters and elementary school teachers and nurses and mothers. As we approach our careers, however, things start to change. Many women obviously still do go into quote-unquote women's professions like teaching, social work, therapy, nursing, and other care work because it's something that's fulfilling or aligned with their skill sets. But for many of us, especially those of us who have been raised on an ideology of pushing more women into STEM in the boardroom, we learn that helping doesn't pay if we want to make it into the middle class in today's hustle-focused, merit-based, work-centric culture. And if you live in a city or an expensive suburb, you have to find a job that helps you pay the bills. For example, the other day I happened to go into a bank here in Silicon Valley. I met a new employee who said that she was a former kindergarten teacher. We struck up a conversation and she admitted that she loved teaching children, but that she also wanted to be able to retire. So now she's working at a bank, wearing suits and talking to people about money. It's an exchange of passion for profit, and it's an exchange that isn't new or unique. It's a mundane, everyday example of how some women are forced to choose between their desire to become or stay helpers and their need to pay the bills and provide for themselves and their families. But what happens when that new job shine wears off and this kindergarten teacher turned banker starts to miss doing meaningful work? When the fluorescent lights in the glass cubicle begin to feel oppressive and her boss is a jerk and her customers are mean and she goes home exhausted, wanting to lie down forever. Maybe she finds a dance class or a yoga class or gets a membership to the nearby gym to blow off steam. Maybe a friend starts to talk to her about Beachbody or she starts listening to health podcasts on her break to pass the time. Or she ends up on a mailing list belonging to any one of the hundreds of wellness entrepreneurs who are living their healthiest and wealthiest lives by making money online. Think back to episode two when we talked to the former tech executive and pole dance studio owner, Christina Kish. So when I set up the dance studio in putting the mission together, I was very... Um, specific when writing the mission that it be a a place that people can come to for self-expression self-awareness and that it's a safe place to do that and that meant for both clientele as well as employees because I wanted some I I know what it's like to have to you know leave your cubicle and you're halfway out the door and someone says to you, Oh, wait a minute, we still have another meeting, <laughs> you know, and it's seven thirty or eight o'clock at night. You know, I know what that feels like. And so from the day I opened the dance studio, I would, if, you know, six o'clock class, six thirty class in Silicon Valley, people would show up and I'm like, good for you. Good for you. Or it, maybe it was a stay at home mom who does a, um, a, sw- a babysitting swap with the woman next door and one of them comes to Monday class and one of them will come to Wednesday class and they'll swap. Those are great ways in, that women especially and men can start to um, prioritize. What, but you have to have a place that you really enjoy going to to do that. Because if it's just an if you check the box thing, you won't, you won't do it. 
And so that's why having a space and continuing to bring, inviting people in who can say, I don't really need my friends to show up with me. I just need to be here because the peop- all the people here are like me. They want to be here. They're working on themselves. They're taking this moment to like grab that oxygen mask. And that's how I built it. The, it, it but it was very deliberate to try to build it that way. If our banker ends up at this theoretical dance studio, who's not to say she isn't swayed by the grab-your-oxygen-mask ethos of the place? Who's to say she doesn't get certified to become a pole dance teacher? I mean, I literally did that. (laughs) I know plenty of other people who have ended up doing some variation of this very thing. One thing that we don't talk about enough here in America is how economic instability is actually creating a need for women to become middle managers and coders, even when many of them never actually envisioned themselves in those roles. I don't want to suggest that all women do not want to be in STEM or business roles. Quite the opposite, actually. What I want to suggest is that some women feel compelled to pursue these types of roles not because they want to pursue them, but because they feel, from a financial standpoint, as though they have to. And that economic instability, coupled with our neoliberal ethos and our obsession with using health as both an escape and a marker of wellness and worth, can lead to women seeing no other alternative than to try to become entrepreneurs, especially in the wellness space. Here's Dr. Rachel O'Neill, the research fellow from the London School of Economics, whom we met in our last episode. So I think there is a generational dynamic to a lot of this. Um, I think... Certainly what I saw among women I, I spoke to who by many measures were, were quite privileged in terms of certainly their class background, in terms of the kind of work that their parents did and the ways in which they were raised, in terms of their levels of education, not always in terms of their levels of income, which varied dramatically among the cohort of women I spoke to, but they were all... I think their lives were very much characterized by a sense of precarity, by a sense that they didn't have a basic foundation from which to operate. Everything was a bit of a a push, a bit of a scramble. It was one thing to the next. And that was part of the reason why they went into entrepreneurship, that why they started their own businesses, even though this is, of course, taking on so much more risk than they would have been dealing with in the context of a nine to five office job. But they, you know, they wanted to work for themselves, but they also wanted to individually reap the rewards that they believed would be due to them. Now, the problem is that looking at the kinds of facts and figures that we have on women's entrepreneurship, we know that many women will never reap those rewards. But the idea is so seductive in the context of precarity, particularly among a generation of women who have been raised on the idea that this girl can, women can do anything, you'll be successful. The reality is that there are structural barriers to your success that you are going to come up against fairly quickly. But that's not necessarily what you've been raised to believe. So I think the fact that we have so many women kind of stuck with this model of trying to do it for themselves in a very individualized way is an entirely logical outcome of the way that they've been raised, of the social and economic conditions that they find themselves in now, of the kind of media that they engage, particularly through platforms such as Instagram, which really encourage logics of self-branding. I think this, sociologically, this makes sense. 
It's not like this is everywhere in the world. There are countries in which care work is better compensated, or there are social systems in place to ensure you don't go hungry because you had the presumption to want to be a teacher. In early 2018, David Geary at the University of Missouri and Heisbert Stott at Leeds Beckett University published a paper on what they called the gender equality paradox in STEM. While the language leans a little too heavily on gender essentialism for my taste, it did uncover a very interesting finding. So the basic question is um, something uh, called the Nordic paradox. So looking at the Nordic countries such as uh, you know Norway and Sweden, where they have um, very high levels of um, gender equality, um, female participation in parliament and a variety of other other things and, and just kind of an ethos of uh, equality. And, and in fact, uh, that's the most gender equal region in the entire world. Um, the paradox comes in uh, with the finding that they're also one of the most gender segregated uh, places in the world in terms of uh, occupations, for, ent- uh, for instance, or academic interests or preferences. So the uh, belief of some people was that as you became more equal in terms of um, the general beliefs about uh, boys and girls and men and women had uh, the institutional things in in place that would um, ensure non-discrimination and so forth, that a lot of um, sex differences would become smaller and smaller over time and uh, eventually disappear. And uh, the paradox is uh, the exact opposite has happened in many, uh, many areas, including uh, STEM participation. So this paradox was affecting the Nordic countries. There's less gender inequality, and yet women are choosing not to go into STEM. But what about the rest of the world? Gary and Stott looked at 67 countries around the world and compared a number of different factors, including gender inequality, economic development, male and female student scores in reading, math, and science, and the number of students who graduated in inorganic sciences and engineering. When we looked at it across um, you know, the world, we find basically the same thing you find in the Nordic countries, the more gender equal the um, country, the fewer women are uh, that are getting uh, college degrees in these areas. And this was despite the fact that girls were outscoring boys in science, and yet somehow there was gender segregation in the workforce. I asked David Geary what he meant by gender segregation. So it, it's not, you know, the old 1950s stereotype sort of segregation. The segregation is really along the lines of uh, women preferring to go into areas that involve dealing with living things and helping people often. Um, but th- those living things can also include uh, vet medicine, biology, so forth. So if, if we look at all of those areas, even those that are um, science-based, there are just as many and often more women uh, going into those fields than men. So veterinary medicine is 80, 90 percent women. Now medical school is about 50 percent women. And then we see men kind of going into areas that involve dealing with things, uh, non-living things, physics, engineering, computer science, uh, et cetera. So you're not 
directly dealing with people. I mean, you may have to work in a group or whatever, but the focus of your job isn't um, directly dealing with people. It's dealing with how things work. Now, again, we don't want to assign the reasons for women choosing to focus on living things to their natures. It's likely that the desire to help is coded not in our DNA, but in our upbringing. However, the numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics bear this out. Women are overrepresented in professions related to helping, and men are overrepresented in professions related to how things work. And of course, even in the organic sciences, men dominate in the professions that garner higher wages, like physicians and surgeons, whereas women aggregate in the categories that pay less, like nursing. But in recent years, at least increasingly in my own lifetime, American women in particular have been pushed to aspire toward careers in quote-unquote how things work. You know, careers that actually pay. For a lot of women, getting paid what they feel they are worth is pretty attractive. So the rhetoric of neoliberal feminism and empowerment increasingly pushes young women towards coding camps and leadership summits in order to get women closer to an equal wage and equal career opportunity. And yet the weird thing that this study found was that if you actually wanted to get more women in STEM, you had to make society more unequal. We wanted to look at some of the factors that might uh, produce more women going into STEM. So if you want a lot of women in STEM, we could replicate the cultural conditions uh, going on in Algeria. I'm not sure too many people would go for that, but they do better than anybody else in terms of getting women into these um, STEM fields in Finland and Norway are the worst. Um, so, but, but in, in, in any case, we, we look, also looked at academic strengths. So we looked at, okay, what, what's your best subject? Is it reading, uh, uh, science or mathematics? And that's important because adolescents and young adults and old, older adults, they, they tend to gravitate toward, um, coursework, college majors, and then occupations that are consistent with their strengths. And so we did that. We, we had almost 475,000 um, adolescents from throughout the world. So, we've, so we looked at this pattern very broadly. And um, <clears throat> on average, uh, uh, reading is the best uh, academic skill of most women. Uh, and that's true in every country we looked at. And science or math is the best academic subject of um, uh, more boys than, uh, than girls. So, so we have this kind of strength, academic strength tilt. So if we, if we go, go back to Finland as an example, uh, the Finnish girls are out doing the Finnish boys on the science test, um, but they're out doing the boys on the reading, language comprehension, those sorts of things at a much bigger uh, level. So a little bit better in science, but much better in reading. So these girls who are good at science and mathematics, many of them are even better at uh, reading literature, uh, those types of areas. And um, people with that profile tend to go into um, uh, humanities-based areas, for example. So, so they're more than capable uh, academically and in terms of their preparation of, um, you know, getting a degree in computer science. 
but um, they're choosing to go another route. They're choosing to go with their strengths and, and probably their interests uh, rather than what people are telling them they should do or what's going to give them more money. Right. And so that right there, I think, is, is what interested me the most about this study, right, is that so in a gender equal society, that, that tends to mean um, money equal, <laughs> right? Um, you know, women have the flexibility to make a choice uh, about what they want to do. Whereas in a, right. a, a country like the U.S., which, you know, we, mm-hmm. we like to, you know, talk about equality, but all talk, no action um, in a lot of ways. And women find that going into a STEM profession, whether or not it's where their heart wants them to go, is the best way to provide for their families or provide for themselves um, to, to mm-hmm. sure. quote unquote, make it, <laughs> if you will, in this, you know, Horatio Alger style hustle culture that we live in. Mm-hmm. Right. And 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 that's what, what we found in places like Algeria, where you know the the nordic countries have uh, you know extensive uh, social safety nets i mean the us has some it's not quite as extensive as um you know the the social democracies in uh, western europe um but in places like algeria there's not much there at all and so if you're a capable person whether you're a man or a woman um you're more likely to go into a less risky, higher paid profession. And that's the the STEM areas. And we think that's why we're getting higher proportions of women in STEM areas in these developing, um, you know, more risky countries. Perhaps it comes as a surprise to you to hear that the U.S. is on par with developing countries when it comes to social safety nets. But if you're listening to this podcast, maybe not. All of this is to say that we may be filling the wrong pipeline in the name of equalizing men and women's salaries, a pipeline that ultimately becomes leaky when some women realize that they don't want to spend the rest of their lives caring about computers or maximizing shareholder value. And sometimes, even when they want to be involved in these types of careers, women run up against the proverbial glass ceiling simply because the pipeline hasn't been built for all women. I spoke about this with Sarah Benet Weiser, the head of the Department of Communications at the London School of Economics. Is the best way to succeed, you know, being told, yes, women can code, yes, women should be in tech. And this is something that I've been really, really grappling with in the last couple of months is, you know, is that the answer then is just to get more women into business, get more women into tech, you know, teach every woman to code, give every girl a pair, a set of Goldie blocks and hope that everything kind of works itself out in the end. And I don't know if that's the answer, you know, like I feel like uh, something you mentioned before, it's like care work. What happens to the women who do choose to do work that involves care or community or, you know, nonprofits, nursing, teaching, Things that, again, not it's it's not biologically coded that women should be in these roles, right? Um, but it is often where women end up. <laughs> so if the answer is to get yeah. every woman behind a computer, what happens to the nurses? What happens to the sick? Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, and I, and I think that, I mean, I think that this is, you know, this is also what I was talking about when I was talking about my definition of feminism is about value. It is what kind of labor and what kind of work is valued. So, uh, you know, again, I feel uh, sort of ambivalent like you do. Um, uh, I want, uh, I have a 17 year old daughter. I don't want anyone to tell her that she doesn't know how to understand math. You know, if she wants to be a computer scientist, I want her to have that opportunity, but, but it's not just about the addition of women into these fields. And that's, it feels like that's a very limiting, um, perspective on revaluing women and revaluing men and, and, and society, because then it's instead of, it, it's just about adding, um, an inclusion, you know, inclusion of women to these fields rather than interrogating the logics of these fields in the first place. And I think that the computer thing is a really interesting example. Um, Marie Hicks has written this great book about how it is that um, women were coders in the computing field um, beginning, right? But that wasn't seen as a valuable thing. And as soon as computing became something that was recognized as the wave of the future, it was that th that women began to be pushed out of those jobs and put into the more social services jobs, you know, or the or the receptionist positions and that kind of thing. So it's it's the industry itself, um, and you can see in unfolding industries um, when you do histories like that, you know, that that has a gender dynamic to it from the beginning when that job wasn't valued. So, you know, it's like uh, as soon as that job becomes high, more highly valued, it, it, it's, you know, it's this this ideology about women not being capable of doing it um, starts to take hold. So um, I think that that it's I don't think it's a bad thing for more women to go into coding. I think that it's a great thing, but I don't think that that is going to change the logic of the tech industries. Why should we care about changing the logic of the tech industries or of business and finance? Because they're patriarchal. Because they're hierarchical. Because our images of success are built on masculine archetypes. Remember what Carrie Angolia, the creative director and yoga teacher from episode two said? I was like, great, I'm glad we're all leaning in. But like, now all the people who are my equal are dudes. And I don't know how to be my best female leader if all the people that I'm sitting in a room with are guys. Like it's great that I've either forced my way into that room or I was invited into that room or whatever combination of things happened to get me in that room. But after a meeting with my boss, I want to be able to go for a walk with my girlfriend who's in the same position and be like, now how do I have this conversation and I want to push in this way and how do I da -da 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 -da. And I want to learn to be able to do that in ways that aren't a mimic, like a female mimic of a male way to do it. Amy Bond, the lawyer and pole dance studio owner, also from episode two, noticed an apparent lack of growth for women who choose to go into business and tech. I have had one negative experience, uh, but that's not uncommon, right? You hear a lot of people have negative experience, especially women in tech, and a lot of it is related to inequality and feeling like they can't grow because they're a woman. And worse, Tiana Dodson, the health coach whose story we've been following for a little while, had to face racism in addition to gender discrimination as she pursued a career in mechanical engineering. I ended up in lots of rooms where I was the only person of color. 
lots of rooms where I was only woman. <laughs> um, I've been in a lot of situations, you know, since college where the women's bathroom was only one stall on a completely different floor in the building, um, even though there was a men's bathroom with multiple stalls on every floor. Like my graduating class, um, well, we weren't very big the year that I graduated, but um, there were four of us women. That was really a huge difference for me, um, was that I often felt, I guess stifled is a good word, um, that I couldn't actually ever really be who I wanted to be because I had to play respectability politics, you know. Um, I couldn't laugh as loud as I wanted to. I couldn't say what I wanted to say. Um, I always felt like I needed to, to defer. I mean, not only because I was kind of the new kid on the block, but also, like, because I was the only vagina on the block. Um, and, like, I actually was told by a coworker that I was hired to be window dressing. And at the time, I, I was just kind of, like, nod and smile because I didn't really understand what he meant, but like down the line realized what he meant, um, you know, and that was really hurtful because it was like, you know, you're not here because you earned the spot. You're here because we needed you to check off some boxes. Even when you feel like your job creates value in the world, even if you don't see it as bullshit, it can grow tiring to constantly be thwarted in your ability to derive value from your job, whether it's higher pay, a promotion, or even respect from your peers. So when you feel like your job actually creates no social value, that can be even more frustrating. I mentioned the book Bullshit Jobs at the beginning of the episode, and I want to stick with this idea for a little longer. According to Graeber, bullshit jobs are the kind of knowledge work, middle management, paper-pushing types of roles where the employee sits behind a desk and completes their tasks, knowing that even if they disappeared tomorrow, nothing much would have changed in the world. They may not even be noticed. Working in marketing, for me, felt like a bullshit job. Not at first. At first, when I started working in marketing for startups, I actually thrilled to the idea that I was somehow making a dent in the world. We were disrupting industries and innovating and all of the other bullshit that startup founders now put in their mission statements. But after several years behind desks and in cubicles, I grew disillusioned. I was commuting for hours to just sit at my desk and answer emails and circle back and follow up and go to meetings that I wasn't really needed for and scroll through Twitter until 5 p.m. when I was allowed to go home with the tacit caveat that I must still be available to answer emails that weren't sent during regular working hours while others were circling back and following up and going to meetings that they didn't have to attend. And my ultimate impact on the world was helping CEOs develop their exit strategies so they could make more money and hire more people to do the same thing at another company in a few years. If I ran off and joined the circus, the only immediate impact on the world would be that my boss wouldn't have another blog post or white paper sitting in the to-approve pile for months until they hired someone else. I turned to health coaching because I wanted to wake up and feel like I was making a difference in someone's life. If you remember from our multi-level marketing episode, Dana Shore, the essential oils consultant, felt the exact same way when she moved to California. I got a job at a startup accelerator. Things I really disliked about sort of that corporate culture, and it wasn't specifically this place I worked at, um, I think this happens anywhere, is that 
if I was given a task or a project and I finished it quickly or just in less time than I anticipated or whatever, I then had to spend the rest of the day looking busy, right? And looking like I'm, and I, you know, I could ask for more stuff, but if they don't have anything else for me to work on, then they don't have anything else for me to work on. I wasn't trying to intentionally just waste time and sit, you know, on the internet all day. But on the other hand, I finished what I was supposed to do. It already got turned in and approved and all that. And yet I couldn't go home. I couldn't go grocery shopping. I couldn't go to my doctor's appointments that I needed or like whatever other things you could think you could do at like 2 p.m. Um, that so I just felt like, well, it's great that you're paying me whether, you know, de- regardless that I'm not doing anything, but I'm just going to sit here for another four hours looking at the clock, trying to look busy um, just because I have to be here. In Bullshit Jobs, Graeber talks about how all of this quote-unquote free time behind a desk has, and I quote, sparked an efflorescence of social media, electronic media that lend themselves to being produced and consumed while pretending to do something else, end quote. I can tell you from personal experience, the siren song of coaching is loudest during the 3 p.m. slump when your work is, for all intents and purposes, finished for the day, but you still have to put in FaceTime until you can leave at 5. It's the reason why there are so many business coaching podcasts popping up each day. People want out. And wellness coaching opens a door for women who are predisposed to wanting to help. Now, you might ask, if these women want to help, why don't they just become teachers or nurses or social workers or, or, or? Well, some do. Some leave and follow their hearts into roles that command significantly less money, authority, and respect. And they do so because they feel better contributing to social value than asking to be economically valued in return. But the 3 p.m. social media slump has unearthed a seemingly more lucrative way to do what Graeber says most people would want from a job. Yes, to make a positive contribution to the world, but also to pay the bills. My friend Sarah Vance, the body image coach, loves being a nurse, but expressed her frustration with lack of pay during our first interview for the podcast about two and a half years ago. You know, we don't get paid enough, period, as nurses for how much we do, especially bedside nurses, um, with all the stuff that we endure. And knowing that care work doesn't pay, but care feels good, my friend Hadas Eviatar, who now works as a network marketer, made the decision to join her diet MLM. Uh, I come from a family of um, therapists, but I wasn't going to go and do a psychology degree and become a therapist. So I was looking for some way to do good in the world, work with people, help people. And um, what happened is that through this company, through this product that I was using, I met a woman who was a life coach and she's also a psychologist. And I listened to a call that she did about emotional eating and it just uh, blew me away. And I said to her kind of jokingly, because I'm actually, I'm older than her. I said, you know, Erin, when I grow up, I want to be just like you. And she said, well, I can send you to where I did my uh, life coach training. So I went to the website, watched a few videos, fell totally in love with the woman who was running it. And I did it. I did the life coach training took me about a year. It was pretty intense, but I was fortunate I was able to do it online, so I didn't have to go anywhere for it. And um, and then I found myself with a bunch of tools to be able to help people with uh, the stories in their head. And I found myself with a product which could make people feel better physically, which is a large part of the whole thing. And uh, that's where I've been going with ever since. 
And Jen Crudeboss, the essential oils marketer and yoga teacher, turned to care by leaving the corporate world and starting her own yoga business. Well, I loved the work, first of all. I mean, I was just like, oh, my God, like my work, it feels like a vacation. I love I have like I have my both my parents worked in a form of social work and helping people with addiction based mostly. So I realized, oh, my God, this is where I I feel very aligned in terms of my values. So already that provided so much energy uh, and fulfillment. As Graeber says in his book, our society has reached a point where not only is the social value of work usually in inverse proportion to its economic value, the more one's work benefits others, the less one is likely to be paid for it, but many people have come to accept this situation as morally right. They genuinely believe this is how things ought to be. End quote. And those who don't accept this situation as morally right, those who do want to perform care work and want to get paid for it, seek out the solution the only way they can see to do it, by aligning care work with entrepreneurship, essentially remaking the realm of care in the image of neoliberalism. I spoke with Dr. Rachel O'Neill, who's looking into precisely why wellness entrepreneurship is on the rise among this cohort of women who want to care and also want to get paid for it. And I think there are good reasons as to why women want to do this kind of work. So you mentioned earlier about the idea of care and the way that that's translated among women I've spoken to is very much about wanting to do something meaningful. And what is meaningful in part is defined through care. So whatever kind of businesses they might have, be that some kind of a food business or exercise or health coaching, there's an idea that they are caring for other women. They are doing something for other women or for other people. Many did frame it specifically in terms of working with and for other women. So I think there is a feminist sentiment that's certainly running through wellness, which is why I wouldn't entirely um, characterize it simply as a commercial endeavor. Um, there, there's clearly uh, social logics that are that are running through this movement market. And yet at the same time, ultimately, all of the women I spoke to were engaged in quite individualistic forms of meaningful employment. They were trying to create their own businesses individually. Very few were actually working in coordination with other people. None of them at all were trying to develop businesses that weren't profit, weren't motivated by profit. Um, this wasn't about creating kind of um, cooperatives or collectives. This was very much about creating individually, individual businesses that are commercially orientated. The problem is that to make it in this world, you do have to be motivated, at least in small part, by profit. But how do you reconcile the desire to get paid what you're worth with a desire to help those who might not be able to pay? To that end, I had a conversation with Carmen Cool, a therapist who focuses on eating disorders and health at every size. If I'm being really honest, it's, it's also a little frustrating as a therapist with years of training, which doesn't make me better, I'm not saying that, but I get frustrated that coaches charge twice as much as therapists do. Like, that's just a personal beef of mine. So Carmen has had to start thinking of her practice like a business. In other words, she had to start thinking like a health coach to start getting paid what she's worth. Well, this, this gets into a whole other conversation in a way about what does it mean to do healing work in a capitalistic society, right? Because at the end of the day, we do have to make money. And therapists, at least most of them that I know, aren't trained in, in thinking of their practices as an actual business. So there's a way that I've need, you know, I've had to train myself to actually think about money a little bit more 
because this a practice is my livelihood. Do you know what I mean? So I, it feels like, um, oh, it's that both and thing again, um, that I, I, am t- I am running a business. I mean, I remember early on, um, I've always kind of uh, considered myself and a feminist therapist, and that's what I want. It's how I want to practice and the biases that I bring, um, and hopefully an intersectional feminist, but there's, there's a way that um, this idea of, of charging money um, for therapy um, is, it's just a rub. I'll just say it that way. It's a rub. And I think it's a rub that we, I may always be rubbing up against, but I remember very early on reading a book called the fee in feminist therapy, you know, like it's a thing. How do we reconcile, how do we reconcile all of this? And what does it mean if I'm charging a certain amount that's maybe half of what somebody can make in a day or as much as someone makes in a day. And how do we make it so therapy isn't just something that only people who are wealthy can afford? Um, that's, that's just something. And I have a mortgage, right? And so I, I think I'm just in a constant state of how do I do this in a way that takes care of myself and my family and is social justice centered Um, And I can't say I figured it all out, but those are just questions that I'm continually coming up against. And it's not just paid care workers who are suffering from a lack of pay. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you already know that motherhood is one of the hardest jobs and it's pretty nearly always unpaid. And you probably also know that when middle class women, you know, the coders, the marketers, the salespeople, even the nurses and teachers go to work, many turn to domestic workers like nannies, babysitters and housekeepers to maintain their households and raise their children, often for little pay. Because, quote unquote, mothering work, despite being some of the most important work a person of any gender can do, has, in Marxist terms, little productive value in a capitalist system. Reproductive work, the work of creating and raising new workers, new human capital, is seen as secondary work in a capital-based system. Here's Catherine Rottenberg, author of Neoliberal Feminism. Although critical theory has talked a lot about care work, right, and it's being undervalued, one of the things that I'm now working on with a group of other scholars, we call ourselves a care collective, is precisely addressing those questions because I think that we are experiencing, we all do in this, um, uh, a crisis of care and a crisis in and of care. And And there are lots of reasons for this, but one of the reasons that I would say is precisely neoliberalism, which makes, which has no vocabulary with which to address reproduction and care work and also helps to invisibilize uh, um, the women, the many women, mostly women, who are carrying out the, the care work. And so it's it's really, really important to bring sort of care work back into the public, um, back to public attention and to, to, to talk about the care crisis, because the care crisis is also about the fact that many more middle-class women are going out to work, right? So the, the, the care crisis... Um, actually gestures to lots of fault lines in contemporary society. And it's really, really crucial. That, and it also points to the fact that the you know, we're facing looming environmental catastrophe, right? So the care crisis is, is, is huge and it goes well beyond um, sort of mothering or parenting. Um, but it's one, it's a way of addressing some of the um, catastrophes that have been wrought by neoliberal rationality and neoliberal economic policies. Recall what Dana Shore said in our MLM episode. 
I think that's why a lot of moms and um, like, you know, stay at home moms or young moms get into it or whatever, or um, teachers as well who are around a lot of moms, things like that is because um, you need more money. You need to help your family, but you also don't want to spend that money on a nanny right away or babysitters or daycare. You want to be home with your children. Um, and this, the whole point is, right, this allows women to do that. Blogging and online entrepreneurship in general, and wellness in particular, have opened the door to women who want to get paid. This phenomenon started with middle-class white women, but now even low-income women, people of color, and queer people are getting on the bandwagon, although the barriers are much higher and the price of failure is much steeper. But this phenomenon promises to make you feel valued for the work you're doing and that the work you're doing is valuable. I had a conversation about this very thing two years ago with Eleanor Predota, who describes himself as a spiritual counselor and coach, a storyteller, poet, singer and artist, a spoonie, a Marxist and intersectional feminist, a mystic, a geek, and a queer, gender-fluid, bisexual witch. When blogging first started, right, blogging was a free thing. Um, the, the blogs that people provided were free. Um, so there were just uh, mostly white, hetero, cis women who got famous first, you know, um, were blogging about their oatmeal in a jar and how fast they ran that day. And they were growing these huge followings of people who wanted to look and live like them. And as soon as advertisers and marketers got wind that there are these like huge swaths of highly engaged people who are commenting, who are sharing, who are emailing, who are looking at this free resource as a community, right? Um, they're building community with other people in the comment sections, in the forums, and later on Facebook. All of these advertisers started to say, hey, how about I just email the blogger and say, will you wear my shirt in your next picture? It's free. You can have it. Will you, uh, here's a sample of this oatmeal. Will you cook it and write about it and just make sure to link back to us? It's free. We'll pay you a little bit. If other people buy it, you can make some money. And so these, these, it's so exploitative. And I, I hate the idea of affiliate marketing at the same time i wish that people would give me money to you know promote stuff but it, you know but at the same time i don't think i could take it now so, <laughs> you know? and I, and and it's so it's so insidious because if you're somebody who is just you at home writing on the internet somebody pays attention to you who actually thinks what you're doing is worthwhile or who tells you that what you're doing is what they think that what you're doing is worthwhile that's that's such an amazing boost especially if you're a person who has low self-esteem or who has been and I think a lot of my perception is that in the early days of blogging there was a lot of what's called mommy blogging which is white cis hetero women who had given their lives to their husbands and children effectively and now we're getting some attention for themselves and their skills in writing and presenting themselves so it, it it's it's very insidious because in in one way yay great somebody gets to have their self-esteem boosted and some income from something 
from their own labor. But on the other hand, the triggers that, that make them popular and that those advertising and product placement people recognize as, as ways to get their message in, to get their product in, are, are supporting white supremacy, heteropatriarchy and capitalism. So it, it's on an individual level, it's like, yay, but on a systemic level, it's, oh, this is really difficult. And I think that that's a dance that's really that's really um, that relationship between what individuals need and what systems do is a really hard one. In Bullshit Jobs, Graeber refers to something that he terms the revolt of the caring classes. This revolt, he suggests, should be happening because people in bullshit jobs realize that they're not doing the work that they believe is beneficial to others, and human beings are naturally primed to do caring, empathetic, or interactive work. Outside of the Occupy Wall Street movement, which he references in discussing this quote-unquote revolt, there really hasn't been a large, coordinated movement to take down the industry of bullshit jobs or demand better pay for caring labor. For example, the teacher protests and walkouts that have been happening in 2018 and 2019, they took place in a few states, but there was no national coordinated effort to demand better pay across the board for educators. As a result, only a few states saw modest increases in teacher salaries, and many teachers are going back to school this fall with classrooms full of supplies that they bought with their own savings after working extra jobs to carry them through the summer. Why hasn't there been a greater revolt of the caring classes before now? And in a world where you can coordinate a giant social media campaign to gain national or international attention for a movement, why not give it a try? Well, Sarah Benet Weiser gave me a pretty good idea of why we haven't attempted it. Well, I sure. I mean, I think that it has to do with, I mean, you know, I hate to, to, to be kind of boring about this, but I think that it, that that is the premise of capitalism. I mean, that that as our identity is as workers, it's also um, a gendered, a historical gendered premise about what the roles of men and women um, in a kind of heteronormative way are in society. So the fact that there's this idea about you know, being a so-called breadwinner that is always assigned to men means that when men don't have work, they feel a loss of self because people say you're not fulfilling your job and your identity as a man. You should be working. You should be providing this idea of being a provider, you know, so so those are deeply, deeply embedded um, ideologies um, that that come with living in um, in a context in which the more money you make, the more successful you are seen to be, right? I mean, so so that's you know another and so and so certain certain jobs are then given more money, right? Are then offered more money, and that's the the issue with nursing. I mean, it's clear that we need nurse, you know, more nurses in the United States. That it's a it's a national problem. And it's also clear that they're still not paying them anything, you know? So it's like their value, the value of that job is if we measure value through dollars, then then that job is not seen to be valuable. So no wonder more people aren't going into it. In a society where maleness and identifying with work is exalted and capital is necessary for living a middle-class, comfortable life, 
Women feel that they need to find ways to attain this quote-unquote male level of success by doing their best to mimic quote-unquote male ways of earning. So even as the caring classes are finding new pathways toward earning by translating care work into entrepreneurialism, I would argue that internet businesses based around wellness have actually done more to erode women's empowerment than to build it up. In fact, I would argue that women's empowerment in the form of internet marketing is specifically what's keeping women as an umbrella group subdued and distracted from coordinating efforts to actually gain financial empowerment. Here's Rachel O'Neill again. And this is something actually that some of the women I spoke to described concerns about. So one used the term pyramid scheme. She was very much worried that because so many of her clients as a health coach are other people in the health field, health and wellness, health and fitness, many of whom were themselves either in or moving into coaching, she had this concern that effectively they were all selling to one another. And yet what was interesting was that selling to other women and buying from other women was how you demonstrated support for other women. And this again gets at this this tricky dimension whereby there is a desire to help and support other women. But the only way that many women can conceive of doing this is through financial means. It's through buying another woman's products or paying for her services. And so we have a version of a kind of a proto-feminism, a desire for solidarity, a desire to be among and to support other women that can only be expressed or affected in commercial terms. Because I think the sense of, of wanting to support other women was there. And the idea of wanting to belong to female community was definitely there. So I've been doing interviews, but I've also been going to many of these events. So events that are kind of wellness days or um, business and entrepreneurship uh, seminars for women in the wellness space, these kinds of things. and the desire for female community is absolutely there. It's unequivocal. You can't walk into a room of 100 women talking about how they can help each other grow, which means help each other's businesses grow, and not get the sense that they genuinely do want to help and support each other as entrepreneurs, but also the other women that they're reaching through their health businesses. And yet at the same time, we again keep coming back to this problem whereby the only way of doing that seems to be in commercial terms. If you think back to the episodes on multi-level marketing, it was the built-in sense of support that drew women toward the business model. The feeling is even though they were ultimately working towards their own personal economic gains, they were somehow part of a larger collective. But neither multi-level marketing nor wellness entrepreneurship writ large offers a true supportive collective in which everybody profits. Instead, the business model continues to do what neoliberal feminism does. It pretends to be feminist by including women while continuing to model patriarchal and capitalist systems, creating winners and losers. With a long and wide-ranging background in activism, community development, spiritual counseling, ritual work, and both formal and informal education, Eleanor gave me a really interesting primer on what they see the difference is between business and capitalism and how we're missing the point with entrepreneurialism. For me, I, I firmly am of the position that capitalism is inherently unjust. Um, and a lot of people have difficulty hearing that. 
because they hear me saying that running a business and making money is unjust. And that's not what that's not what I mean by that at all. Because capitalism is very different from business. Human beings have been doing business for thousands of years. Even even before there was a there was money in in any of our cultures, there was a certain amount of specialization. So you had somebody who was really good at, you know, blacksmithing. You had somebody who was really good at getting horses to do what you wanted them to do. There was someone who was really good at growing herbs. And those specialisms are what we now call business. So now it would be, you know, someone has a business as a blacksmith or has, you know, or the equivalent would be has a business as a mechanic or has uh, a business as a herbalist or in retail or whatever and these are and business is great because it is a way to create a container to bring our genius to the world and for those of us who are there are many many of us who find it very difficult to work for other people for various reasons um business is really the only way that we can support ourselves and our families and our communities um, without having to go into a working environment that is, for whatever reason, extremely difficult or impossible for us. While Eleanor describes capitalism as a differentiation between who does the work and who profits from it, I ask how that applies to individuals engaging in wellness entrepreneurship. I mean, if you own your own business, aren't you doing the work and therefore don't you deserve the profits? Eleanor sees nuance here. Even if we're not engaging in business as capitalists, we are still engaging in neoliberal capitalism by the very fact of participating in this economic system. All we can do is try to make spaces for justice in the work that we do. And I think if you're a sole trader, that that's not you're not a capitalist. But to get to get technical and Marxist about it, you're a member of the petty bourgeoisie. So you still you still benefit from capitalism and the systems of capitalism because you go to a bank to get a loan to develop your business or you um, if you go to an investor the way most people think about if my business gets big enough for me to have to need external investment to expand, I will make a share issue. Which immediately then puts you into the world of capitalism with a big C. So it's not so much about, if you're a sole trader, it's not so much about um, your current business. It's about the way we think about our business. It's the way we think about it as this is my business. And if I want to expand it, I either have to employ people or sell off bits of it to a whole load of people who don't necessarily care about it which or both which are basically your options under capitalism so so for me there is a way to even under capitalism as a system there are ways to be to work against capitalism and most of them involve 
expanding the circle of, the, of people to whom the business belongs. It's not enough then to create a business that's about empowering other similarly privileged women to also become entrepreneurs. It's about recognizing that the system itself is inherently flawed and not trying to parrot it even as we seek to subvert it. We don't even realize we're doing it. I mean, when you exist under the ethos of neoliberal capitalism, how do you see outside of it? I want to offer the benefit of the doubt and assume that most women who embark on this journey to wellness entrepreneurship don't do it to become famous. They do it because they want to help. The only problem is they just don't see any other way of doing it because all of our role models are internet famous CEOs. Here's Tiana Dodson again. Oh boy, internet famous. Um, hmm. Man, would I love to be internet famous, but I don't know if I want to, if I really want that, you know what I'm saying? Like, like on paper, it looks like, oh yeah, internet famous, be awesome. Who doesn't want to be Danielle Laporte? But I don't know that I want that life, <laughs> you know, like, um, I like being here with my kid. Um, he's two and he's a fucking handful, but like we have so much fun and his face is so sweet and I love seeing it as much as I can. Um, you know, and I enjoy cooking my own meals sometimes, <laughs> you know, um, I, I don't want to have to jet set. I don't want to have to, um, have 300 emails a day. Like, I don't, I don't want that. I would like my business to be sustainable financially. And I would like to live comfortably off my business and contribute to my household um, with what I'm making. But, you know, like, do I need to be internet famous for that? Not necessarily. I mean, um, would that be nice? Yeah, I guess I would not say no to it. <laughs> But, but like, you know, I mean, for me, my goal is not to just like, I don't want to be Tony Robbins on a stage, you know, um, just for the sake of being on a stage. Like, I want to be on a stage because I am touching people and helping them become who they really are, you know. Um, and, and for me, that's the thing is like, I'm, I'm, I, I want to help people not help myself like my mission is not for me to become famous and rich my and well known my mission is to help people and if i can eradicate fat shaming along the way i'm all about that but do you have to be the ceo of your own business to do that and can you actually achieve that goal by offering wellness only to those who can pay you Here's Rachel O'Neill again. The question I would raise is why do you want to be the CEO? Why do you want to have the kind of structure in place that means some people are the CEO, some people are running the show, and everyone else is just working for them? I think that entrepreneurship, as well as being highly individualized, is necessarily interested in sustaining, it is necessarily imbricated with hierarchy. Because to be an entrepreneur means to be the one who is going to take the risk. And only some people have the ability within an uneven social structure to take risks. So those people are going to have to be the ones who have a relative degree of privilege, who have a certain amount of income that they can put into a business, who have the requisite 
connections in the business world who have the cultural capital to be able to build a brand that becomes visible on Instagram to circumnavigate the algorithms. You need to have all these things. So if you're going to be successful as an entrepreneur, as we've currently conceived it, no matter how much good you're doing, you are invested in hierarchy necessarily because entrepreneurship is necessarily invested in the idea that some people take the risks and get the rewards. At this point in the podcast, you're probably like, oh my God, there's just no solutions and everything is terrible. What do we do? Well, there are solutions to the problem of uneven social structure. It's just that Western society, as we're practicing it right now, is not necessarily at a point in its development where those solutions are easy to implement. I discussed this with Rachel O'Neill. Uh, so, I mean, do you do you think that there is a uh, a future in which this is not the case? Um. And if so, like, how would you envision that? I think there is a past in which this is the case. We have business models that we could look to. Um, for example, in publishing, we've had lots of very successful feminist collectivities operating, certainly in the UK. Those kinds of business models are available. The problem is that they don't really fit with the kind of individual brand narrative that people are encouraged to take up, particularly through platforms such as Instagram. But the models themselves exist. I suppose it's that they're they become further and further out of sight within this overarching Tina space, this idea that there is no alternative and there's only one way of conducting oneself successfully as a woman and as an entrepreneur. Um, and even the idea of entrepreneurship, I think, well, as well as being extremely gendered, it's also extremely individualized. Entrepreneur is almost always a singular. Or when we're talking about entrepreneurs, we're not ta really talking about people who are working collaboratively. We're talking about individual entrepreneurs, you know, congregating in the same room. It's hard to imagine a world without capitalism because we've been raised on the idea of Tina. There is no alternative. There are alternatives. It's just that we have consciously and unconsciously been engaging in the system as if there are no alternatives. So how do we solve it? We have to stop engaging. Many feminist critics and scholars see the solutions rooted in collective work. In fact, most of the critics and scholars with whom I spoke during the course of recording this podcast suggested collective models. I asked Eleanor about what a collective model of work would or could look like. Um... It looks, in short, it looks like a lot of hard work, but then isn't everything. <laughs> I mean, I, I will just talk from my own experience, I guess, of workers' cooperatives and um, community groups. Um, I've been in a few different ones of those. Um, and the, the, when I talk about workers' cooperatives, what I'm there are lots of different models of workers cooperatives what I mean by that is a model of workers cooperatives where everybody who works in the business owns the business and no matter how much money they've invested in the business they have the same right to make decisions about the business 
and the workers' cooperatives that I've been, I was in, I've been in workers' cooperatives and groups that were made decisions by consensus, and I've been in a workers' cooperative that made decisions by a democratic one person, one vote. So there are, there are all sorts of different models, and you have workers' cooperatives where there's an executive board that's voted in once a year, um, and you have workers' cooperatives where everybody's involved in decision-making. So there's a huge diversity um, amongst them. But the main thing with workers' cooperatives and other um, collective endeavours is that people come in with a power over and power and disempowered and power over model in their brain, almost in the hindbrain, because it's so prevalent. Um, so, I mean, what I mean, the very first workers' cooperative I was a member of um, was a modified community supported agriculture scheme where um, those of us in the workers' cooperative free of organic vegetables from a cooperative of farmers in a local rural area to people around the city we lived in. What was different about working in it as a workers' cooperative was that we were all responsible for the decisions that we made. And that is such a different way of thinking and not everybody wants to take on the responsibility for decisions, um, even if they want to take on the um, benefits of profits. So it's like if, if you're gonna if you're gonna have um, if you're gonna be able to say what happens to the profits, you also have to take responsibility for the decisions. So that that's that's one of the main things about community organising, whether it's in a business context or a, um, a charity context or a whatever is is taking responsibility. And that's why I think why so many more people don't do it, because we don't learn positive models because of capitalism because, and because of all the because we have such a top down model of society and because it's either somebody is telling me what to do or I'm a rugged individual. It's kind of that is the binary that goes on in the way that we're um, raised to think about power. Um, that it's very hard for us to kind of debug our thinking to make it possible to have enterprises, social enterprises, community groups, etc., that work along that level where people have control over the means of production in the case of business or uh, community resources in the case of community group and take responsibility together for, for the consequences of those decisions. So I asked Rachel, what would help us stop engaging in this idea of Tina? What would help us learn to think more collectively? I think stepping away from the platforms would, would definitely be helpful for many people. And yes, I am saying that we could look to the past for 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 alternative kinds of, of business models, but we could also just look elsewhere. Um, these There are many people, there are many businesses that operate 
in a collective, collaborative fashion and, and who run on a, not, a not-for-profit basis, um, workers' collectives, for example. So these, these options, the, these, these models are available, but again, they're not the kinds of ones that you see really highlighted and put forward on Instagram, that you see highlighted and put forward for even wider viewers via the mainstream media, via Instagram. Um, and so again, I think it's about the fact that these kinds of logics just don't really fit with the images of highly individualized female success that we see celebrated in contemporary culture. When we see female success celebrated, it is typically the individual woman who is being celebrated for her individual achievements and accomplishments. Or potentially the individual woman with a good man behind her. These images, these logics, social media, blogs, and other visual platforms influence and acculturate us to the idea that this is the best or only path forward. And it's, I mean, it's how we're, many of us are raised. I mean, that's just, it, that's the language with which we're raised. So having to unlearn that language and then figure out a language that is both, uh, you know, it's both true in a lot of ways, but also something that feels true. Um, and what I what I mean by that is like, you know, so you and I can talk about like oh, building a nonprofit and a collective and all of these things. And then we go back out into the world and see individual people being the ones successful. And it doesn't feel true, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is true. And we just have to figure out a way to kind of translate that and somehow make that visible in a culture that relies so much on visibility Mm. for narrative building. I think there are also generational logics here with our, which are worth talking about. So as much as I am saying that, yes, we can look at actually existing alternative business models. And yes, we can also look to the past. We should be particularly taking inspiration from the kind of care collectives and health collectives that we saw, for example, with movements like Our Bodies Ourselves. But there is a generational component to this, which means that for younger people today, it is very hard to do those kinds of things because they do not have the base level of financial security that was available to women who occupied a similar social positioning to them, say, 30, 40, 50 years ago. They don't have the same kind of base level of of financial security. And so we have this generation of young women who want to do good. They want to do something that they find meaningful for themselves, for their own work, and that is beneficial to other people, particularly to other women. And yet they need to make a living. And it becomes harder and harder in that context to think in more collaborative ways, to think in nonprofit ways, because you are continually scrambling for any piece of the pie, the gluten vegan pie. And that gluten-free vegan pie may be allergy friendly, but it is not accessible to everyone. In one of the first conversations I had with Sarah Benet Weiser, we talked about what it means to visibly sell your success. It is true that when you have, when you leave the the traditional workforce and you have constantly around you messages and ideologies about being your own 
entrepreneur, the entrepreneur of the self, you, you know, your self brand, you can do this. And then you have, you know, uh, a lot of visibility on those few people, um, who actually get, um, make a lot of money being a beauty blogger or, or the woman, you know, on, on Oprah, you know, building a self brand. So those exceptional cases, end up, you know, kind of circulating so visibly that we, you know, that we buy into this idea that anyone can do this. Um, anyone can be um, a success. But not everyone can be a success. That is how hierarchy works, which makes this pyramid scheme of selling wellness entrepreneurship to one another unsustainable instead of empowering. Rachel O'Neill and I discussed this idea. I think this has been a really interesting conversation, um, particularly, I think, around what we might describe as the kind of false promises and potential dangers of wellness entrepreneurship and health entrepreneurship for women. As much as it's being billed as something that is a kind of a fix, it's an individual fix, it's a health fix, it's a meaning fix. There is this overriding unsustainability that you and I seem to both be seeing on the horizon. And it's that question of, of how will that actually be meted out? One way that unsustainability will be meted out is that there will be failure. I failed. And though the monetary loss was painful and the toll it took on my emotional health was high, I was very lucky to have a safety net. Not everyone will be so lucky. So if we recognize, and I would agree with you that it's not sustainable, but how will that unsustainability be realized? I imagine, or I would venture to guess, that much of the unsustainability, the injury of that will be borne by individuals. Individuals will fail and see themselves as having failed as individuals because their businesses, again, are sole woman operations. And so if they don't make it, I wouldn't be surprised if there was then a tendency to see that as, as an individual failing, a personal failing, that they haven't worked hard enough, that they just didn't have the, the right aptitude or the right skills. And so I would agree with you that it's unsustainable, but my concern is that that will still, that, let, that unsustainability will still be kind of carried out or realized at an individual level, such that you have individual women feeling that they are failures, that they've been unsuccessful. But we'll still see the spotlighting of those, those few who have made it, which will continually feed new cohorts to arrive and say, yes, I will, I will, I will go forth, I will try and create a similar kind of business. Whether that's wellness or something else remains to be seen. And that is why I started this podcast to give those of you, the, the cohort of wellness entrepreneurs who have yet to arrive or who are already on the journey or who have wandered off the path after a setback, awareness. Awareness so that you can, instead of focusing on the content of your dinner or the content of your Instagram, go out and fix the problem. And I know that it's not gonna be easy. I acknowledged this in my first conversation with Sarah. You know, so if I were to go to somebody and I have had friends who have tried to convince me that the best way to make money is to sell a multi-level marketing product or whatever. And, you mm -hmm. know, and I've had conversations, uh, frank conversations where I've, I've listened, you know, and what I've heard is, well, sure, I, I'd love to not be able to sell this, but what else can I do? 
right? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not uh, a question of, well, do you go back and get a STEM education or get your MBA? For a lot of women, there's not that kind of access or the interest, to be honest. Um, and, and and people still don't hire exactly. them anyway. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. You know, there's, I mean, everyone's like, oh, there's a pipeline problem. There really isn't a pipeline problem. There's a hiring problem. Um, you know, and, but yeah, that, I mean, it is, it, that, that's why I, I, that's why I think that it's really important for us to approach this with a nuanced perspective that, you know, that there are, that there are, you know, um, ways that, um, there are only so many avenues, especially for women, um, and, and for, you know, uh, people of color, that there are only so many avenues, um, and where, where we are seen as being sort of authentically creative, um, and, 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 and so what happens is then you, you had develop an industry about, again, about a curation of the authentic self online that isn't authentic in the sense that it isn't necessarily, um, a reflection of that person, but it is a performance of authenticity. The performance of authenticity, the allure of the self-brand is going to remain strong until we fix the systems that are making it hard for women, for people to care and be cared for in other ways. Until we fix our broken corporate culture that creates bullshit jobs, until we stop rewarding business and STEM so disproportionately over caring professions, until we acknowledge that there really are few spaces for women to be authentically themselves in a world that has largely been carved out for and by cishet men, women will turn to their bodies to create value and receive validation. Tiana Dodson sums it up. Nowadays, I mean, I can be who I am and say what I want to say and like everything that I do now is centered on my values. Like my business is who I am and the way that I perform my business is who I am. Um, And I don't have to worry about like, Ooh, is somebody judging me? Okay. Yes. I am worried about that because of course, like I want, people to trust me and give me their money so that I can help them. But uh, less about like, I'm going to get fired (laughs) from this job because HR is going to see this tweet. So in that way, like, I really am happy to be where I am. So I be who I am. Listening to Tiana, I know that there's more to this than simply dismissing wellness entrepreneurship as a toxic byproduct of neoliberal capitalism. While we're in and under this system, we need ways to cope with it. We need ways to be who we are. And for those who want to be a part of the caring classes, who want to help, this is one very visible avenue. I don't want the conclusion of this podcast to be that women should stay in the home, in the kitchen, and in domestic roles, or that our goals of having more women in leadership or tech are misguided. In the context of a neoliberal capitalist society, in the context of a world in which business and tech literally rule, we absolutely need more women in leadership and tech. We need more equality in the workplace. In a decentralized, globalized society where knowledge work is power and hierarchical privilege determines who wins and loses, asking for anything less would be to reify the hierarchy instead of undermining it. 
But as the Western world becomes more obsessed with health and wellness, with prolonging our already long lives or staving off diseases that may in part be caused by unhealthy diets and exercise, there is a yearning for a time when our lives were more centralized and care work could be shared or even performed consistently. If we want to make actual change, if we truly want to help people, then we have to consider what it would mean for us to reject neoliberalism and begin collectivizing again. To view health as something that is accessible to everyone and not an entrepreneurial goal. At the same time, I also don't want the conclusion of the podcast to be that all health coaches and yoga teachers and personal trainers are bad or wrong for pursuing these paths. I know so many coaches who are doing such good and positive work for the people who come to them for support. They are doing helping work in the context of the world in which they live. I don't want to fault anyone, regardless of my own worldview, because I don't believe that this is something for which individual actors deserve blame. My call to action is not to cancel wellness entrepreneurs or to call out particular people, but to torch the system and to responsibly figure out solutions before we start lighting the flame. And while we work on those solutions, to proceed with caution, with awareness about what it means to become a brand, about what it means to brand our bodies, about what it means to sell that body brand to others. I want to end on a thought from Alan Levinovitz, the author of The Gluten Lie, whom we met in episode five, because I think he sums it up pretty perfectly. The funny thing is, branding, for all the negative attention that it gets, it's also fun. It's a, it's a part of how we live our lives, but we, we also have to at once be immersed in it and aware of it. Um, and finding that balance is, is hard, but I, I, don't, I don't think that you go wrong by, by trying to cultivate a little bit more awareness, especially in an area like food. The Your Body, Your Brand podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Kyla Tova. Dramaturgical feedback was provided by Kendall Lynch. Music for the intro was written and produced by Mackenzie Quattlebaum. Concept photography for the website, social media, and podcast cover art was taken by Reza Scott of RF Scott Imagery. And that's it for season one. Although, stick around for an epilogue where we'll debrief on Jennifer Seminathan's yoga teacher training and also hear follow-up interviews with a few of the wellness entrepreneurs whose voices you heard throughout the podcast. Even though this season is concluding, I'm already gathering stories for season two. If you are a teacher, a nurse, or doing any kind of domestic or caring work, and you're also considering or already performing wellness entrepreneurship, if you're a member of a marginalized population and wellness coaching has adversely or positively affected your life, if you're a man who has hidden their body image issues or disordered eating behind coaching, if you're recovering from an eating disorder and still blogging about wellness, or even if you're not a member of any of those categories, but you have still been affected by wellness entrepreneurship in some way, I want to hear from you. Please send me a text, email, or recorded voice memo at yourbodyyourbrand at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. <laughs>